Have you ever felt helpless? You ever felt helpless? Man, I have many, many times. Uh, you get this feeling like, ah, there's, there's this huge need, but there's nothing that I can do about it. Uh, if you hear uh, news going on, right? Some of you watch or listen or uh, do something with the news. You, you know what's going on around the world. You hear about hunger, right? There are lots of people in the world starving. You hear about water crises everywhere, right? Many different places where they don't have access to clean water or water at all. Uh, you hear about human slavery. Man, the amount of people who are being trafficked around this world and who are still in slavery is staggering, absolutely staggering. And on a weekend like this, let's not pretend like that doesn't happen right here on St. Catherine Street, right? Surely there are, there are girls being trafficked from coast to coast in our beautiful <clears throat> O Canada place, and they're being sold to highest bidder. They're being taken from their families and being called and forced to do things that they don't want to do. This isn't a problem somewhere else. This is a problem right here. There's terrorism, right? There's murder. There's theft. There are horrific things that happen, and you watch it on the news or you hear about it, and if you're like me, you say, oh, I'm helpless. Like, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm sad, but I'm, I'm helpless. What can I do? What could I ever do to alleviate the hunger of the world, right? Oh, if I was the, the CEO of Amazon, then I'd do something, right? Maybe, maybe not. But that's all the world. Maybe you're sitting this morning and you're saying, I feel helpless with my own life. I don't have enough money, right? The, the in and out, the, that budget thing isn't balancing out, right? I have more money going out than is coming in. That's a problem. Maybe you're jobless or searching for a job that can give you more money or better position or will treat you fairly. And you're saying, there's nothing I can do. I feel stuck. There's no way for me to move ahead at all. Or maybe you're battling sickness and you've been battling sickness and there's nothing that you can do about it. Uh, right now, I, I would love it if you prayed for my dad. My dad is 18 days into this sickness that no one can figure out. They've ruled out all the major things, but he's up all night long. Pain medication isn't touching the type of pain that he's experiencing. And so as a family, we're just saying, there's nothing we can do. I'm on the phone with my mom yesterday saying like, you need to talk to the doctor, you need to tell him this. She's like, I'm doing that, doing that. So we get to these places in life where we're saying, ah, I'm helpless, there's nothing that I can do. But most of our life isn't that. Most of our life isn't a place where we say, there's nothing I can do. Rarely can we truly say, there's nothing I can do. We love perseverance stories, don't we? We love seeing the underdog come out on top. We love movies like Rocky or Rudy. Rudy is the story of a, a football player. He's probably shorter than me. Goes to, they pronounce it Notre Dame, right? Goes to Notre Dame, plays football, works himself onto the team. He gets to play like one play or something. And, and you love that story because you see him persevere all throughout. You see that he didn't, he didn't say, oh, I'm helpless, I'm short, I'm little, I can't accomplish that. He actually got it done, and we love those stories. But what we're gonna see today is not that type of story. We're not gonna see a story of perseverance. We're gonna see a story of reluctance. We're gonna see a story of, well, if I have to do that, I guess I will. We're in the book of Esther. Esther is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, the time period is around 400 80 to 470 BC, somewhere in there. Uh, it takes place in the Persian Empire. King Xerxes uh, had, a, had a wife named Vashti. He was drunk, wasted, wanted her to come in to showcase his trophy wife. She refused. He fired her, right? Donald trumped her. You're fired, get out. And, uh, and he found a new uh, wife to be his, his queen. It was Esther. And Esther was part of the people of God, is part of the people of God, but wasn't supposed to say that she was part of the people of God based on the advice coming from her cousin, Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai uh, is this man who wouldn't bow his knee to this guy named Haman. Haman becomes second. I'm just catching you up. All this was last week. Uh, Haman becomes second in command in the world. Mordecai refuses to bow his knee because Haman is an enemy of the people of God, an enemy of the Jews, longtime enemy. And so uh, Haman sets out to destroy the Jews. He sets a plot 
uh, where he can actually annihilate them and wipe them out. And that's where we're entering the story today. The Jews are all going to die, right? We've heard this story before in history where someone tried to wipe out the people of God. You've heard this before. It happens again. And so there's actually a day set where all the Jews are gonna be wiped out. And here's the response of Mordecai and the people. Esther chapter four, verse one to three. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. And this was um, a normal custom to do, right? Uh, If something bad happens, you're so much frustration, right? In high school, I would punch lockers. Uh, Here, they, they ripped their clothes, okay? Tore their clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and in ashes. So this very um, destitute response, this response of, of hopelessness, but there's something missing here. I don't think that the author of the book of Esther just forgot this detail. They're fasting, they're like throwing ashes on themselves, they're wearing sackcloth, ripping their clothes, but the one thing that's missing is that there's no prayer. There's no prayer of the people of God to God. They're responding, yes, like I'm upset, I'm sad about this, I'm weeping loudly so everyone can hear, but there's no prayer. There's response but no request. They're turning to hopelessness. They're turning towards a situation as if there was no God that they were a people of, as if God was not present and ready and able to to work and move at any moment. They turn to hopelessness. Isn't that always easiest? Isn't it easiest that when bad things happen to just put on victim mentality and be like, oh, it's hopeless, There's, there's no way we could change anything? That's what they do. But then Mordecai remembers, ah, I have a connection. And this is what we do as well, right? When things get bad, we start reeling in our minds for people that we know to get us out of this situation. And so Mordecai's cousin is Esther, and she's the queen. So Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Mordecai is saying, Esther, you have to understand who you are. You have to understand your position that you might be able to change things. You're queen. You're queen to the king of the world. You're in a place that you could have influence. And here's what Esther says in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, There is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. There's nothing I can do, Mordecai. I wish I could do something, but the king kind of forgot about me. He's put me out for the past month. Maybe he found some new virgins to play around with. I don't know what he's doing, but he's wanted nothing to do with me. And she's right, in a sense, to say that by law, she couldn't go in. By law, she should be put to death if he didn't ask for her, and then if he didn't hold out the golden scepter to give her mercy and grace for coming on her own initiative. So so she's right. Legally, she's right. But I think the bigger thing that's going on inside of Esther is her self-preservation. That if I go in there, I'm gonna lose everything that I've gained. If I go to the king, he doesn't listen to me, he doesn't allow me to keep living, I'm gonna literally lose my life and everything that I've been preserving and keeping up to this point. Self-preservation. Isn't that sometimes why we don't do what we know we're supposed to do? We know that we'd step out to protect someone, but we also know the consequences. We know we've been preserving ourselves and building up ourselves. And if we act, it will cost us all of that. So in moments where we should be not even brave, but just right, where we should be right, we hold back because we want to preserve ourselves. 
We dealt with this this week with one of our kids on the school bus. Um, our kids uh, were not the hero in this situation, all right? And, and they, had been, they had been taking snacks uh, from one of the kids on, on the bus. And, and one of my children, to be unnamed, uh, was, was hanging out with an older kid that we know is, is a very clear bully. And so we said, son, you know what you're doing isn't right. You know what you're doing is, is wrong. And we, we just saw it in, in his eyes that, that he, he's afraid of losing everything with that kid. That he's, he's been accepted by an older kid that's willing to even protect him on the playground, right? It's like mafia on the playground type of thing going on. And my kid is being brought into the family, right? He's just a friend at this point. But, right? And we're like working that through and we see, he didn't say it, but we see and, and hear and everything he is saying, I'll lose everything I've been working hard to gain. And we're the same way. We're just better at masking it than my, than my child is. But the reality is, is that she's not helpless. She's the queen. This is not a helpless position. And the reality is, is that we aren't helpless either. We aren't helpless either. If you are a follower of Jesus, here's the reality for you this morning, is that you have a, a dad who is God. God is your dad. He is able to do far and abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. He says that in, in his word. You have all resources available to you. It might not be in your bank account or in your house, or you might not see them right now, but you have all resources available to you. You are the furthest thing from being helpless. This is who you are. This is who you are. We make excuses, though. We let the what-if monster, I was reading this book to one of my kids yesterday too, the what-if monster, and I'm like, ah, this is for me. I'm reading this to my child, being like, yeah, don't live like this, but, but this is me, that, that the what-ifs, what if they don't accept me? What if I don't have enough? What if uh, this thing fails? What if I get to this place and no one's there? What if, what if, what if? And these what-ifs can eat us up before we actually do anything. It's the self-preservation and the what-if monsters that exist in us that, that force us into hiding and saying, you know what, I'm just gonna enjoy God over here because I don't know if he's gonna be the same God as I believe he is in here, out here. Because this is dangerous. This feels even godless. Can God be who he is in here, over here? What Mordecai wanted for Esther to understand is that she has this position of possibility, a position of possibility. It's not a position of certainty, but maybe, maybe by you acting, maybe by you doing what you know you should be doing, maybe everything could change. That's a hard place to live, isn't it? The maybe. Because if it doesn't go well, what's gonna happen? You're not gonna be part of the fifth grade mafia. You're not gonna be loved by your boss. You might even get fired. You're not gonna be accepted by your neighbors. You're not gonna be invited to certain parties. There's, there's a piece of you that, that, that could die. That, that living in the maybe piece is so hard for us. Listen to what Mordecai says to Esther after she says, there's nothing I can do. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You're no more safe there, Esther. Remember what happened to Vashti? She didn't come in on the night that the king wanted her. He, he removed her. He wrote a new law based on that action. Don't think you're safe. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's saying, you're already dead. You're already dead. You go to the king, you could die. You don't go to the king, you're definitely gonna die. You're as good as dead, Esther. That's a hard thing to, to say to your cousin that you raised. You're as good as dead, Esther. But maybe, maybe you will deliver us. How could Mordecai say maybe you will deliver us? Because the entire trajectory of this book is God rescuing his people. That's what God is on about. You wanna like 
craft your life into a mission statement that maybe you put up over the door when you leave every day like a football player and like tap the door and you remember, or maybe you get it tattooed you know, across your arm, or maybe you have it on your desktop or in a coffee mug or whatever. Here's God's thing, I'm rescuing the world. I'm delivering my people, all of them. And so what Mordecai is doing here, though there's no mention of God in this book, we have to be really clear about that. There's no mention of God in this book. They're living as if God doesn't exist, but we see glimmers of hope like this. That deliverance will come for the people of God. How do we know that, Mordecai? Because that's what God is on about. And so Esther, even if you don't step up to this, God is going to step up. Even if you don't follow through on what you should be doing, God is going to follow through in what he will do. Maybe though, Esther, God is just inviting you into this plan. But here's the reality. Esther hasn't been meditating on God. Esther doesn't have, by all accounts and purposes in the book, we do not see this thriving relationship with God. Esther is not a woman that I want my daughters emulating in all areas. She's just not. And this is true of almost all the people in Scripture. God doesn't put people in Scripture so that we can say, hey, go be more like Joseph. Go be more like Esther. Go be more like Peter. No. They're set up there to show us that none of them could save us. None of them could do enough to please God. They all needed God to deliver them. Every one of them. Every one of them. Esther is not a poster girl for godliness. I was reading a commentary recently on the book of Esther, and so I'm gonna share several quotes from that commentary this morning by a man named Ian uh, Duguid, I think. Anyway, here's the first one. It is as if someone who has risen up the corporate ladder by shady manipulation of the books, along with neglecting his family and any connection with the church, were to be asked to stand up at a board meeting for his faith over a crucial issue. His response might well be, could God really use someone like me after everything I've done or failed to do? This is Esther. And this is so encouraging to me because if God can use Esther, because he will, we'll see that in a few minutes. If God can use Esther in this way, then he can use me. Man, I fail all the time. This morning, I get up super early trying to be nice, let my wife sleep in because she was out really late last night. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, I got the kids in the morning, this morning. Don't worry about it. And, and my kids get up, and they're not in the best space. And I'm like finishing up things, making slides, whatever. And they're like kind of wrestling. I'm like, sure, you know, like the wrath of God coming through me. And, and I'm like, don't you know I'm working on important things? And they're like, no, daddy, we didn't. And I'm like, well, you should, you know? And then I separate them. I'm like, you go to your room and you go downstairs. And like, it's just all wrath while like Holy Dwight is tapping away on the keyboard, right? And this quote came to me. Wow, if God can use people like Esther, God can use people like me that are frustrated, angry, even verbally so, with their kids on Sunday morning before coming to, to preach excellencies and all the other things, right? That God uses broken people. God uses people that aren't all put together. This should be very encouraging. Esther shouldn't be someone to be like, well, at least I'm better than Esther, so I didn't sleep with the king. At least I wasn't in the harem, you know? Like, it should encourage us to say, wow, Lord, if you can use someone like Esther, then you could use someone like me. So Esther, after learning about this plight, she prepares herself. Esther 4, 15 to 16. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, okay, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Susa is a capital. And hold a fast on my behalf. So go without food. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perished. You know, she had lived a life of comfort in the king's castle. And now she's gonna fast. And maybe... Maybe this is the first time she's ever fasted in her life. She makes no connection to fasting and praying, right? We see it again, going through the motions, but she makes no connection to fasting and praying or interceding or begging God for anything. Maybe she's just living out the faith of her grandparents, 
This isn't maybe even her own faith yet. But she's in this crazy position and she, she calls for this fast. And here's what fasting does. Fasting awakens us. It awakens us. It awakens us quickly. If you haven't fasted before, okay, you should try it sometime. And you will be awakened to your hunger. You will be awakened to the fact that you need food. You're like, I don't need anything. I'm a self-made person, blah, 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 blah. Go without food for a day. You'll be a baby, right? I fasted with the big tough guys. They're like, I need food. You know, like it gets crazy by the end of the day. Fasting awakens us because it, it does two things. It tells us that we can't live like we did before. We can't live like we did before this fast. And for Esther, this was, this was true. Listen to what Ian Duguid says. We do not fast because we have comfortably isolated ourselves from the grim realities of the world around us. We do not fast because we have comfortably isolated ourselves from the grim realities of the world around us. That if Esther's gonna fast, what's gonna happen? Her eyes are gonna be awakened to the fact that my people, the people I'm a part of, are going to be destroyed. Because every time that hunger pangs come, she's gonna be thinking about that. This is what fasting does. It's very helpful that when you fast, to be fasting for something to be fasting uh, for a neighbor to meet Jesus, fasting for uh, a, a big decision the church has to make, fasting for a, a new church plant, fasting for all of these things because it's like fasting somehow, the desires of God gets pressed into our hearts in a way that it just doesn't normally happen. So there's no magic to fasting. It's not like we get to bend God's arm in fasting. He's like, okay, fine, you've gone without food long enough. I can't, can't do it anymore. But somehow, fasting connects our hearts to God's heart. And we learn dependence. We learn something very significant. I need that next slide. Mm, P3S3, go get them. Why would you name your child P3S3 anyway? You're mean, you're mean. Seven or soda, so it doesn't sound so much better, but P3S3. Um, here we go. In fasting, we learn dependence. Another quote, sometimes it is good for us to fast as individuals, sometimes as a community of God's people, reminding ourselves that our normal state of life in this world is not fullness but hunger and appealing for God to grant us what we so desperately need. That we are dependent creatures. We are not independent. As I said before, try going without food. You are dependent. You are needy. And it's fasting that often awakens or reawakens our hearts to that reality that we need God. We can't bend God's arm, but we can train our hearts. And this is what fasting does. See, it's spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading our Bible, or fasting, or giving that trains our hearts that we are dependent on God, and that we need Him more than we need money, more than we need food, more than we need uh, a sleep in, more than we need my agenda. Spiritual disciplines reorient our hearts on God. Spiritual disciplines are something that should be daily ongoing. And I don't mean you have to sit down and read massive chunks of this or pray for four hours at a time. But I mean that, that there's this ongoing relationship. How do you do relationships with people? If you're married, most likely you have an ongoing conversation with your spouse, right? You don't start, dear spouse, you are amazing. Thank you for being my spouse. You look so lovely today, my spouse, right? It's just like, hey, what are we having for supper? You're oh yeah, I'm cooking supper, that's right, okay. Uh, what are we doing later? When are we gonna do this on vacation? How are you doing today? I know you had that meeting, how did that go? It's this ongoing conversation. The start and stop points don't really happen. It's like, love you, bye, see you later. But beyond that, it's no like weeping, crying, sending out for good. It's, it's this, I know you're coming back. As long as the Lord brings you back, you're coming back. And this is the way that our relationship with God works. It's this ongoing thing that, yeah, we set aside some time. We should set aside time, but then we're engaging with it. As I'm walking here this morning and sensing 
that the city is spiritually dark. I'm talking to my wife about that. She's like, oh, we should pray about that. I'm like, yes, we should, right? Er, no, you need to engage God with this stuff, Dwight, right? I need those reminders from people. But we engage God with these things because he can actually do something about us and about the problems. And we must engage for life. We must engage for life. If we want life to be brought to people, then it's gonna have to be the Lord's will that's bringing that. So we have to engage with him on these things. Now, Esther says something interesting. She says, um, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Now, this sounds very brave and noble, like, whoa. But it's really not that brave. It's not that noble. One of the commentators says that this is a resignation of the inevitable. That she realizes, like, I'm gonna die. And if I die, I die. It's like she comes to terms with that very quickly. So it's not this, this thing to be emulated the way that Esther's providing it, but it's understanding that, okay, yeah, the Lord has placed me here for this time. I want life, but what seems to be in front of me might cause me death, so I'm willing to die. Well, that's a profound thing. Right, we can rail on Esther a little bit and be like, yeah, she's not a poster child for godliness, but she's slowly growing. In a very short time, she's growing, right? She's willing to, to now lay down her life for her people because that's just where she's at in life. And honestly, if I perish, I perish. This is where the Lord wants to bring our hearts. Not to say out of reluctance, but to say, because that's, that might be where he's bringing us. If I, if I die, I die. I can't hold on to this life. I can't keep things close-handed. I have no idea what's gonna happen to me. The Lord wants to bring our hearts to a place where, where we're willing to perish, where we're willing to say, ongoing, life is not about me. Notice that, if I perish, I perish. It's for others. This life is not about me. Esther is growing significantly. Now, something happens during this fast. I believe, you could disagree with me, that's fine. Just don't do it right now. Um, but I believe that it was during this fast that God gave a certain wisdom to Esther. A shrewdness, I would say. That's the word I wanna use. A shrewdness. She makes a shrewd proposition to the king. And let me stop to say this, that we need wise women. That God, women, okay, women, God has gifted you. You are not to be a voice that is silent. You're not to be a voice that's just put in a corner. There's so much wisdom that God has given to you. And we as a church, we, we need that. We need that. We believe that God created men and women equally. And we need for the voice of women to be spoken into the realities of this church. You think that it's the elders and the pastors leading this church all by ourselves? No way, right? Like when I come home, my wife's like, hey, so what, what happens? Right? It's like going to, the, going to the gates of the city, like, ah, we're leading and ruling the city and my wife is taking home or at home taking care of four kids, doing crazy things that you know, I struggle to do. And she's like, oh, what happened? I'm like, oh, we're, we're thinking through this, 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 this. She's like, did you think about this or this or this or this? I'm like, oh, there's so much wisdom. I need your wisdom. We need your wisdom. You're so important. And we see this in, in, in Esther, that she's brilliant. She's brilliant. And she does this step-by-step, -step, carefully calculated plan. She's not reactionary. She's not reactionary. She's not emotional. I don't think she's stoic, but she doesn't let her passions drive her. She allows for wisdom and her shrewdness to drive her. So let's finish up the story. The first thing that she does is she invites the king to a feast. Remember, he hasn't wanted her for the past 30 days. So she invites the king to the feast. Here it is, chapter uh, five, verse one to five, should be. Uh, maybe not. Nope, I'm gonna read it to you. I have a Bible here. All right, Esther five, uh, verse one to five says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. 
when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, okay, here's where he could have killed her, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half of my kingdom. Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today for a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the first thing she does is she invites him to eat. She breaks the law and she could be rejected in that moment, but she isn't. So she's like, okay, I'm alive. This plan is gonna still keep moving forward. And I believe that the shrewdness of Esther comes out in her inviting Haman. Because she could have just done business with the king, be like, hey, that guy's a scumbag. Um, you should just behead him, and we should go on vacation or something and, and replace him. But instead, what she does is she says, let's throw a feast, you and your main man, Haman, and you're gonna come together. What is she doing? She's seeing the relationship that the king and Haman have. Is the king willing to get rid of Haman? Is the king willing to supersede Haman and make Haman look Foolish. She's testing the waters. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And the king at the feast, he opens his heart to her. In verse six, as they were drinking wine after the feast, never hurts to have wine, right? The king said to Esther, what is your wish? It should be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, what's interesting to note here is that the king opens his kingdom to her, not to Haman. He opens it to her, not to Haman. So in her mind, she says, I have favor. I have favor. But what she doesn't yet have is credibility. This is just a one-night thing. It's just, is this the way the king feels tonight because his heart's merry with wine? Let's invite him again tomorrow and see what happens. So that's what she does. Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of my king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She's building credibility. And then what happens is absolutely profound. Here's where she lays it all in the line, is that she asks the king to act against his reputation. This is the thing that the king loved most, his reputation, his power, his position. She's gonna ask him, we'll see in just a second, to act against this reputation for her. Choose me over yourself. Listen to the account, it's about eight verses. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold. I imagine the king is sitting up at this moment. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not have been, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. She knows that this is gonna cost the king his reputation. Then King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king could kill Haman. He could dispose of him. Haman is disposable. Esther's seen it. Not a big deal. But the king couldn't blame Haman for this. Why? because it was the king that actually declared this destruction. It wasn't Haman ultimately, it was Haman who devised the plan, but it was the king who gave his ring to be able to stamp the approval on this death decree. So Esther, instead of saying an enemy, a foe, Haman, she could have said, it's you, you're gonna kill me. But he would probably say, sure, I'll remove you. But instead, she puts it on, on Haman who is just as guilty. 
but he was gonna have to break his own law. The king was gonna go, have to go against his own law, and if the king goes against his own law, who could trust this king anymore? But in the end, he won't need to. He won't need to go against the law. Now, we'll see that in just a second, but I, I wanna throw out the irony here. Haman wanted all the Jews killed because one man, Mordecai, wouldn't bow before him. So the irony is that Haman is angry because a Jew didn't bow, but now he is bowing before a Jew, begging for his life, right? There's all kinds of ironic twists in the story. And here we have redemption. We have redemption in chapter seven, or um, chap yeah, chapter seven, verse eight and 10. The king returns from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Probably he's like, phew, I don't have to break my own law. He's trying to assault my wife. What happens to people who try and assault the wife? They die. Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. The king said, hang him on that. Redemption, the enemy, dies. And not only that, but now Mordecai is put in charge. Oh yeah, there you go. So they hung, hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Now Mordecai's put in charge. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai. Esther sat, set Mordecai over the house of Haman. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. These are stories that the Lord likes to write. And then we finish today here. That day, that day of annihilation gets reversed. He wrote the name of King Ahasuerus, this is Mordecai, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. That's important, I guess. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. The story has been completely switched. Haman wants to set out to destroy the Jews. God delivers his people through Esther, places Mordecai now at second in command in the entire world, and now the people who were to be hunted are now those who are given the opportunity to hunt their enemies, wild, all like that. What the story does though, is, is a beautiful story. Next week we'll look at the fulfillment of it, the final victory that comes in a godless world. But this story, as good as it is, it's really just a setup for the best story. This is where we come into it. Because just like the Jews were on a path for destruction, we're on a path for destruction. Romans 3, a book in the New Testament says this, all have sinned, all have missed the mark of perfection and fall short of the glory of God. And that puts us in a path with a perfect king, a king that has every right to pour out his wrath as the king did upon Haman. God is, is perfectly loving, we believe, but he's also perfectly just. He will not let any little minor white tiny lie type sin thing in, nothing. He guards his holiness perfectly. So we're on a path to destruction. That you and I, where we sit, we sit as, as enemies of God. That's encouraging, huh? We sit as enemies of God. We sit as the godless people. We thought the godless city was out there, but the godless city's in here. We sit as godless enemies who repeatedly, sin against God, especially when we try to stop. Sinless, enemies, godless. Our story should end with destruction. It should end with a gallows. It should end with God sitting on his, his royal throne of justice and condemning everyone away from him. That should be the end of his story. 
But God loves his opposition so much that he would send Jesus. We believe Jesus is God. So God himself comes in the person of, of Jesus. And he doesn't flaunt his holiness and perfection over people. He uses it to minister good. He takes heaven and ministers it to people while he's on earth. But he came for a very specific purpose. God came to become an enemy of God for us. God came to become an enemy of God for us. And he came to lay his life down for us because our death couldn't atone or pay God back for our insufficiencies, for our sin. So God comes and does it himself. We see this in Romans 5, 8 through 10. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, being, meaning made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life that God chooses to perish in our place. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Like, ah, oh, you know, how can I fight against the will of whatever? And God says, no, this is my will. I'm going to come and I'm gonna perish in your place so that you never have to experience an eternal separation, an eternal perishing, an eternal place away from God. And Jesus, as a true hero does, the only true hero, every other hero that gets put up on a screen or in a book is trying to emulate the hero that Jesus is. Jesus conquers death and then comes back to life. And he has all authority. In Matthew, after he had risen from the dead, the book of Matthew, Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That what's happened is now death has been reversed. Death is slowly working backwards, that death itself is going to die. The way that Haman's plot got flipped on its head, so death is getting flipped on its head, and life is going to outlast death. This is good news. Funerals aren't the end, but for so many are just the beginning of real life. Paul writes this, uh, skip down to verse 55. Death is swallowed up in victory, oh death, where is your victory? This is like mocking death. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, conquered our sin, and now has sat down at the right hand of God. That one day there's not even gonna be an aftertaste of death. There's not even gonna be that weird meaty stuff that gets stuck in your teeth after a steak dinner. You're like, ah, oh, I had steak two nights ago, right? Like, where does it get lost up there? I don't know. It's no, there's gonna be no remembrance of death. Nothing. There'll be no taste of sickness, sadness. Sadness is gonna come untrue. Inside Out movies made for before the new creation because sadness will not be there, thankfully. She's a dreary character. You can't, you can't earn this. You can't earn this, this eternal life. You can only receive it. It's given as a gift to you. This is what Jesus, the better Esther, comes to do for his people. Now, how do we apply it? How do we apply it? What I'm not gonna tell you is to go and be like Esther, but I am gonna let you know that we're gonna be sent out into a, a godless world, and we're being sent out this morning with shrewdness and power a power that's not your own, but a power that, that was the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. So here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna go out into your situations. You're gonna continuously engage a godless world. They're gonna be your friends. They're gonna be your family. They're gonna be your coworkers, and you're gonna love them. You're not gonna you know, probably put up labels in your mind, godless. In fact, don't do that. You love them as you've been loved by Christ but you're gonna continuously engage this world. You're gonna encounter hopelessness. You're gonna encounter over and over people trying to find a better connection to get them to the place where they wanna be, but even if they get to that place, they're not really gonna ever be able to, to fill the gaping void that they feel viscerally. 
So that's a situation we're being sent out in. But what's our position? You are an ambassador of God. Long pause. You are an ambassador of God. You are sent ones into the city. You are the, the angelos that is spoken about in the New Testament. You're the messengers. They get to go out and show and tell of the good news of who God really is. And you're not just ambassadors that keep your job if you do a good job. You're children, you're sons and daughters of this God that you're an ambassador of. So before we even send you today, you're already loved. You don't have to earn that. You're already loved because of what God has done for you. But you're sent with the power of life. My friend Jay Bauman says this, we often live so casually as the church, we forget that we're in the business of life and death, giving life to what was dead every day by the power of the Spirit. This is our position. This is what you're sent out with. And so every morning that you wake up is a preparation morning. Every day is the big game, right? I joke around that, hey, you gotta get ready for the big game. When's the big game? All the time. All the time is the big game, right? So what's the preparation that's necessary? Engagement. You have a God that wants to rescue people through you. And you're like, I don't have that heart, but he wants to give it to you. How do you get that? You spend time with him. How much time? As much time as it takes. Have you ever taken a whole day off from work or a Saturday away from doing normal things and sat and said, God, I'm here. I want you to speak. I'm going to read some of your word, but I want for you to speak to me. I just want to be with you. When my kids say, Dad, I just want to be with you, I know, like, but what are we going to do is coming soon from them. But, like, I just want to be with you. I'm like, ah, oh, I just want to be with you, too. I just want to enjoy you. That the Lord actually wants to be with you and invites you into this. He's not a cold, distant God. He's very present. And he wants to move your hearts into a place where you say, you know what, I'm ready to perish. Life is, is an ongoing series of little deaths where we constantly are dying to ourselves over and over and over and over. You die to yourself when, when you serve others. You die to yourself when you're giving resources to people. You die to yourself when you're praying for others. You die to yourself when, when you're serving in significant ways. You die, it's constantly dying to ourselves. This is our preparation so that we can say, if I perish, I perish. But in preparation, we move expectant as well. Ian Duguid says this, we cannot know ahead of time how God will choose to use us. He may heal our diseases, transform our breaking marriages, plant thriving ministries through us, or he may sustain us in obedient submission to him as our earthly hopes are dashed and our lives poured out for apparently little purpose. Either way, though, we have the guarantee that he will use even our faint faith as the means of bringing glory to himself. With this assurance, we can add to Esther's cry, if I perish, I perish. Simply let me perish in a way that brings glory to God. If we're gonna minister to the immortals that we're encountering on a daily basis, we need to spend time with and know the heart of the true immortal one. And then lastly, as we leave our time of preparation, we go into a world with propositions and proposals. We can't just go into a world saying, well, I believe this because the Bible says this. How many times have you won that argument? Probably not many. What we need to do is we need to show. We need to show that what we believe is, is better. And I don't mean superior. But Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus dropped the objective claim to truth. And that's what we want to show. We don't want to win arguments. I don't want to win arguments. That's all I wake up in the morning, Dwight, win arguments today. I want for people to see Jesus, and I want for him to, them to see that he is better than whatever they're pursuing. One of the big things that, that we pursue in our culture is sex. Sex is a very individualistic pursuit. 
It's a way that we dishonor one another as, as those made in the image of God by watching pornography, by masturbating to that, by buying prostitutes, by hooking up before we should be able to, to have sex with one another, by doing whatever we want with whomever. Sex is, is open, fair game. It's subjective. Do whatever you want with it. What we don't need to say is, well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. If you wait until marriage, if you wear a promise ring, that's legit. Okay, great. But how do we show that the sex that God calls his people to is better than the sex that the world is pursuing? How do we show that? When I talk about sex, I don't talk about how many or how long or how whatever. I talk about the ways that we get to serve to serve my spouse. I'm a servant. You're a servant by the way that you have sex. It doesn't shut off when you enter into the bedroom. Oh, now this is all about me. The world doesn't think that way. The world just doesn't think that way. And so the way that we're, we're approaching every subject has to be to show that what God has intended is far better than the things that we have concocted in our minds and, and we just chalk it up to saying, well, culture does it that way. What if culture's wrong? What if they're wrong? And what if this is actually true? I would say that if you're pursuing Jesus and you're saying, I disagree with a lot of what you're saying, do I, I would say keep pursuing with the question of what if it's true? Let that what if monster eat at you. What if it's true? What would that mean? How does this compare to life? And honestly, church, this is our job as ambassadors, is to show that the world that God is remaking is better than the world that we are living in, that his design and desires are far better than the perversions and the bends that we have placed into them. And this is hard work. This is really hard work. You're gonna have to think and pray and engage and build relationships and listen to people. You can't just one-line them. You can't just one conversation convert people. It's not how it works. But you have a position of possibility. So, church, you are sent. You are sent with the signet ring of God. You are sent not helpless, but with the helper dwelling inside of you. And he is remaking you and the world. So enjoy him as you get to watch him transforming you and those around you. Lord, thank you that you are a great God. Thank you that you are all about your glory. Thank you that you will not bow to anyone else. You will not bow to our culture, and you're not intimidated by a godless world. In fact, it's not godless. You are here. You are present. You are active. You're moving. There is nothing and no one that is beyond your reach. And so I pray for those uh, who are here this morning who don't believe that you really love them and that you could forgive them and that you could use them. May they hear the story of Esther and be shattered say, Lord, if you can use Esther, you could use me. Pray for those of us who, who believe intellectually that we are ambassadors and adopted children of God, but don't live that way. Would you cause our lives to, to get in line with what we say that we believe? Would you cause us to, to stare at the glory of God and, until it changes us and you change us? So Lord, we're hungry for you. We wanna respond well to you today. We thank you that you are not impotent. You are not um, unable to awaken hearts and raise affection. So Holy Spirit, would you lead us during our response time this morning? We love you and we need you, amen.